Take a network break, pass the tray of virtual donuts, and join us for our weekly scamper through the meadow of IT news. We've got stories this week on new silicon from Broadcom, a new wireless AP from Extreme, cyber insurance, and more. Uh, we don't have an ad or a tech bite for today's episode, so enjoy this freebie. Uh, let's dive right into the news. Broadcom has announced a new ASIC in its Tomahawk line. It's targeting hyperscale data centers. The new Tomahawk 5 is a whopper. It's 51.2 terabits per second of throughput in a single ASIC. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about Broadcom and Whitebox and how Broadcom ASICs power a lot of vendors for switches and so forth. So um, this is the next generation. Now, the Tomahawk is mostly out of the portfolio that they have. They have Tomahawk, Jericho, and Trident. The Tomahawk is almost exclusively targeted at the hyperscalers these days is, is what I, you know, you were on the briefing with me, so you know most of this. But the enterprise yep. is more looking towards the Trident, which is now used in the campus and enterprise data center at the top of rack. And the the Jericho family is more often used in chassis. So this Tomahawk 5 is the natural progression. It moves the Tomahawk 4, which was at 25.6 terabits per second of forwarding performance to 51.2. A neat little doubling, don't you think? Isn't it mysterious how the doubling keeps up? Very good. Yes, mm. they always manage to double. Um, yeah. They're also now supporting 400 gig and 800 gig ports uh, on this chip. I assume we'll see uh, the OEMs rolling out 800 gig at some point on the switch side. Yeah, and also interesting was that Broadcom in the presentation that we received uh, are talking a lot about the open standards. Now, we've been a touch critical of Broadcom in the past for trying to hold you know, the APIs to themselves and to try and control mm -hmm. things and restrict what's, what happens with their chipsets. But this time they were willing to make a big point of they're now fully supporting the Linux SAI or switch abstraction interface that's widely used. They're still putting their own SDKs under that, but they say that they're now one of the largest contributors to SAI and Sonic operating system now. And they're all on board with a single SDK and industry standard APIs for all of their switch chips. Now, when they say a single SDK, they talk about their SDK. They want elder customers. Right. So not, not <laughs> open, <laughs> but they are converging on the SAI. I think the industry or customers in this case have prevented an Intel type situation where Intel is the dominant CPU and it took decades for you know AMD to emerge to compete with it. And I think that's something that's, uh, well, good for us, good for customers, is that, you know, Broadcom doesn't get to dictate what the vendors can do and how to package it. There's a diversity of supply. We've seen Marvell make acquisitions and other vendors come in with their assets. We've seen Cisco even develop their own asset, although much more at the higher end. Um, so it's good to see that, you know, Broadcom has to compete. And, you know, this is a, a cadence. They are releasing a upgrade every two years. They sent us a slide showing that, you know, from Trident now to Tomahawk 5, every two years they double the performance, which is astonishing, really. It is quite astonishing. Mm -hmm. uh, touching back on the SI or switch abstraction interface, this was initially a Microsoft initiative. They brought it out to the open source community. I think it's uh, now an open source project, which Broadcom can contribute to. But my assumption is Broadcom decided it had to get on board SI because if it wants to sell to Microsoft Azure, it's got to play in the SI game. So yeah, they are. Uh, it's nice to see Broadcom moving that way because they were pretty rigid about who could do what with their yeah. uh, SDK. And I think other vendors are moving down the SI path as well. Juniper, for example, you know, with Abstra and the third party market, uh, we'll talk more about companies like DriveNets and so forth, are moving down that pathway. Now, some companies are still implementing SI in their own uh, firmware, you know, supporting the APIs. So I think part of the value of SI is that it's defining APIs that are common to all the hardware platforms. But for a lot of companies, it just doesn't make sense to have that effort and just to use the off-the-shelf open source, you know, Apache or any piece of open source is often the common features that 95% of the market wants. So I'd like to think that size in that direction. Um, 
So Tomahawk 5 will save power. It won't save power because it uses less power, although it does as it gets because it's using smaller footprints, but because it will replace a lot of other switches. So where before to get the sort of capacity, you know, 256, 200 gigabit interfaces on a single chip before you would have had to have six uh, Tomahawk 4s, right? So this is a much bigger step up. So less switches for the same, you know, for the next step up in performance. Um, they're also talking about uh, PAM support, so 100 gig PAM 4. They believe that they've got uh, very low power uh, direct attached copper interfaces, which they're supporting. And they're also working to put um, co-packaged optics in the boxes. They believe that now co-packaged optics is very much a cloud provider thing and not something that uh, enterprise will probably use for various reasons. But they want to uh, make the point that their SIRDES, um is available to have a wide range of choices for whatever the customer wants. Right. Uh, other notes from this release, they've got six on-chip ARM processors on the ASIC, so you can support things like streaming telemetry and run embedded applications directly on the ASIC if that's to your liking. Yeah, the old story of you know programmable forwarding, and they always talk about INT or in-band telemetry, this idea that right. you'll mark packets and they'll, met, they'll go across and then you'll be able to flag you know and see what's actually happening in the network down to a very, very fine-grained level. Now, that's been popular with large clouds who have the resources and also the need to see everything at a per flow mm -hmm. level. I think that's fine for, it's the old joke, you know, that's fine for Facebook or that's fine for Google. But right. I, <laughs> I don't really see this being so relevant to most networks or most customers out there. You're not likely to use it. I was interested to see them taking a shot at NVLink and InfiniBand. They said, you know, our technology um, is better than InfiniBand and NVIDIA's NVLink. Um, if you're running high-performance compute, you know, obviously if you're running at 200 gig, 400 gig, 800 gig Ethernet, you're going to be way ahead of InfiniBand and even NVLink potentially. It's not unreasonable, but it is a bit tough. There's there's differences. So Right. I think they want a piece of that uh, AIML processing market, so they're making claims that this Tomahawk uh, has been optimized uh, so that you can use Ethernet instead of RDMA yeah, or InfiniBand yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're running AIML workloads. Uh, which makes sense. They want it. They want a piece of that uh, market, but yeah, the, I think. Well, HPC is huge, and AI, right? So this we're seeing yep. enterprises yep, yep. start to build out high performance compute to do data analysis on on prem, and we're also seeing clouds get into the AI clustering and um, and that whole thing. And so all of a sudden, the interconnects between systems become the bottleneck for a lot of these mm -hmm. model analysis. Um, especially if you're running GPUs across multiple chassis, so you can't use inboard. And then we're also seeing the move for CXL to expand, like to disaggregate the servers. So there's going to be a competitive thing here where Ethernet versus CXL and who's faster and who's better. But definitely I think Broadcom wants, doesn't want to leave space for other companies to come in and try and get into the networking, particularly NVIDIA with its Mellanox. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. All right, moving on. Extreme Networks, they've announced a new outdoor Wi-Fi 6 EAP called the AP5050. Uh, the new device targets stadiums, convention centers, hospitals, campuses, and other high-density locations. It comes with three uh, 4x4x4 radios, promises uh, aggregate data rates up to 10 gigabits per second. And because it's 6E, it can access the 6 gigahertz band, which was open to unlicensed use back in 2020 here in the US. Yeah, what's unique about this is this appears to be, as far as I can tell, and I'm, I am not an expert in wireless and in Honestly, I always feel a little difficult approaching these, but this actually appears to be the first out outdoor AP with integrated aerials. So there's plenty of other outdoor APs, but they all rely on external antennas. And so you have to mount them, put them. This is actually a box which includes the antennas and they're actually software configurable. So you can actually configure three different radio modes in these, in these APs. 
So if that's correct, and I don't misunderstand, I did some searching to try and confirm it, but it appears to be the first integrated AP with internal antennas that is externally mountable. So it's meant to stand up, be outside in the weather, bolted to the side of a building or, you know, yeah. up on a pole. And another thing that they wanted to brag about a bit was the fact that it's using 802.3 AT PoE+. That means it's consuming less than 25 watts, which is astonishing. Uh -huh. That's, you know, uh -huh. this brand new high-powered blah, 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 um, which is actually quite good because you can get easily get PoE plus uh, switches out there supplying that PoE or injectors. Whereas, you know, most of the other vendors, when they're doing outdoor APs, are using 802.3 BT, which obviously provides up to 100 watts using four pair, which is uh, much more expensive to support and maintain and to to, to get switches deploying that amount of power. If you think about it, 4.8 kilowatt power supplies in a switch, you know, for a 48 port is actually quite expensive. So you usually end up with a half-loaded switch or something like that. So uh, I would guess, I haven't looked, but uh, I would assume that Extreme probably has some 802.3 AT PoE Plus switches in their portfolio. <laughs> I would think so. Do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I think but, it's a safe bet for our spreadsheet. Power efficiency is one of the things they're claiming. And the other bit I liked was they actually directly addressed the fact is when is it going to come? We know that getting delivery of these of wireless kit is quite bad, anything up to 24 mm -hmm. months at the moment. And they say this will be shipping in November if you order now. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that is a big claim. That is a big claim. A That'll be interesting claim. to see if yeah. that's actually true. But, you know, good on right. them. <laughs> good on them. Mm. Uh, one other note, the AP supports two extreme network OSs. You can pick the extreme IQ NOS or the wing-based network OS, depending on whether you want a cloud-managed or on-prem-based wireless controller. Mm. It's nice. You know, whichever way you want to have it. Yeah, and it also helps to rationalize sort of the extreme portfolio, which was built a lot through acquisition. So makes yeah, sense. well, that's important. But I also think the tech support angle. One of the things we're hearing from vendors is that they're now focused on reducing the cost of their tax, and they're doing things like reducing footprints to be able because there's just more diversity, just has more cost to them, which I think is great. Yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, DriveNets, they're a startup. They make software for cloud-like networking. They've raised $262 million in a C round of funding. They were founded in 2015. They've now raised more than half a billion dollars in funding over three rounds. Now, this is really interesting in that we sort of saw a slowdown in investment into enterprise uh, companies, I don't know, about two years ago before COVID, I think, came in. And um, although there were some funding rounds it, it sort of slowed down a bit, and then the, the industry has contracted over the last year. We talked a lot about the downturn in technology uh, financially. So for DriveNets to score a fairly large sum of money, $262 million, um, is actually something to note and would suggest that they're having good traction or good sales um, to be able to go to investors and say, give us more money. And the previous round of funding was 200 and. Uh, I think I think it was about two hundred and twenty million, and they were valued as a mm -hmm. billion dollar unicorn back in the days when that was a thing. Um, right. So this must value them well, but they must. I do think that this might be a bit of a down round for them if they got two hundred and twenty odd in the B round, and this time they're coming back for two hundred and sixty million. Maybe they didn't get so much as they might have wanted or would have gotten a year ago. So, but good to see an independent software maker in the networking space, and they talk specifically about having a lot of success in the service provider in the cloud market. So not necessarily something enterprises would be seeing. Yeah, they're definitely targeting service providers and telcos. They make routing software. It runs on white box hardware and x86 servers. Um, and their basic pitch is, you know, if you're a telco or a service provider, you want to run like a hyperscaler, meaning 
they can create resource pools for you and then you can you know split it up based on the application or network requirements that you have and they also have a suite of routing services mm -hmm. that you can use on their software yeah if i was a tier two cloud provider i'd be looking at this product seriously because it's got way more features than you've seen from most of the traditional vendors for its capabilities yeah and it's also all about software defined management mm -hmm. All right, links to the show notes if you want to check out DriveNets. We'll move on. Apple's released two patches for recent vulnerabilities that affect Apple phones, tablets, and the macOS operating system. The vulnerabilities could allow the execution of arbitrary code. Yeah, this was um, an odd one. Uh, Apple doesn't usually release them so quickly, but the fact that there's some uh, zero-day vulnerabilities and they've been spotted in the wild, I didn't get too bound up about this because I don't know that um, it's a big deal in this case, but if you are... <laughs> using these tools, make sure you go and get the updates as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, it, it's great that Apple moved quickly. Uh, it's a little alarming that it affected all three of their platforms, but it sounds like they did move fast uh, when news of this broke to get patches out. And this is, I think I'm just uh, bringing it up here as a way, if you're an Apple user, you, you want to go get these updates uh, right away. Which I did. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. That's to die. That's to die. <laughs> Uh, the U.S. Cyber Command, they coordinate cyber defenses for U.S. national interests. They've announced a partnership with Croatia in which U.S. cyber operators deployed to Croatia to help the government deal with cyber threats while also learning other methodologies and capabilities from their Croatian partners. Yeah, what struck me about this was they called it Hunt Forward, which <laughs> at first I thought well, <laughs> sounds a bit like hunting forward. Is that a code word for attacking, attack back? And it's not. Um <laughs> but what, so as I got into the article, I started to get uh, a view on how military cyber security or cyber defense is actually occurring. And so from this uh, PDF file, which does come from cybercom.mil, so it is the US government uh, and their cyber warfare arm, or, or one of them, I guess it's got a few. It says, for the first time in US cyber command history, a team of elite defensive cyber operators deployed to Croatia oh. to hunt for malicious cyber activity on partner networks, returning with new insights and partnerships that bolster the nation's defense. So in this case, uh, the US is actually sending its its cyber teams over to other countries to work with the local people, so allies, in effect. Now, Estonia, mm -hmm. of course, has been... Uh, sorry, Croatia and Estonia have been in the front line of the Ukraine war and have been uh, really struggling to sort of keep the Russians out and define political and keep control of the information space. So in this case, it's it's not an attack mission. It's more of a reconnaissance mission. So the US is going out there and providing advice and doing detection and then handing off to the local team to execute changes and make adaptations. So they say in the report, hunting is a proactive cyber defense activity to observe and mitigate threats that are undetected on a network. While hunt forward operations teams do not mitigate the threats on partner networks, they enable their counterparts to pursue and address the threats of the hound. So good training exercise and in the light of NATO and what's happening in Europe with the Ukraine war and, and the Russian aggression. Right. I note that today Estonia was announced that they, this is not Croatia, this was a Croatian, Estonia, which is another country in the region, has just defended from a really significant DDoS attack on the government websites. And one would think that this is due to these sorts of programs. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me that the U.S. would want to get towards sort of what are quote unquote, well, it's hard to say front lines when you're talking about um, InfoSec, but uh, to a country that's probably getting significant incursion attempts from uh, Russian state actors. So it, it makes sense that it would be having these kind of partnerships with other countries to both help them out and also learn from them to see what they're seeing uh, as they work to mitigate threats. Yeah, and it's also good practice, right? You know, if you're a 
you know, US is out there, they've got these teams, you've got to keep them in the elite. So you've got to get them doing stuff. Well, you know, let's yeah. fly them out to our allies and get them to do some on-the-ground detection. That would be straight-up intelligence gathering if it was normal military, yep. you know. Let's go and set mm-hmm. up a team in the Ukraine to see what to monitor what's happening <laughs> or something like that. Well, not Ukraine. Wouldn't be surprised if people are there, but we're not hearing about it. Yeah, either, it's, yeah. It's, so. as always in cybersecurity, there's always stuff happening that nobody's talking about. But this, so that's what yeah. flagged this one to me. Yeah. Uh, sticking with network security, the Del Oro Group is forecasting that SAST-based security services are going to top sixty billion by 2027. Yeah, I. I well, at first, when we started talking about SaaS in the years gone by, I was a bit negative about it because the off-prem and who owns your data and what's your security. But customers seem to not care, or if they're concerned, they balance the risks against it and say that's whatever. But I also equally, when it comes to SaaS-based security, I, I'm conscious of the fact that it's actually working. You know, the speed at which the security ecosystem changes with new tools, new problems, the speed at which attackers are coming up with new ways to attack you, and the sheer poor quality of things like Microsoft Windows and cloud companies to just so badly, you know, Microsoft Azure, for example, is full of holes that we keep discovering all the time. And really the only way to keep up with that speed is to have some sort of centralized control system that can adapt very quickly. And so I, I find it quite reasonable that SaaS-based security services like we've seen with, say, Palo Alto's Prisma Access and and that type of stuff, um, is there's no reason for it not to continue to grow because it does make sense. And that whole cloud-hosted scanning and logging and monitoring uh-huh. just, just seems to work pretty well so far. I mean, it's $60 billion, you know, for the overall cybersecurity market isn't that big, but it is. Uh, it, does, it does make sense that this is going to grow as organizations, particularly as they're dealing with more distributed environments, uh, instead of having to roll out, you know, the, the suite of appliances that you'd want at an edge location, just redirect all that traffic into a cloud location and do mm-hmm. your uh, security services there and also get that unified, you know, management control plane is a nice idea. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Palo Alto, I just want to take this moment to plug uh, an event that's coming up there. Palo Alto Networks is having a sassy Converge event. Um, we've talked a lot about them. They've been a big sponsor of the show. And we did a, a presentation event there. And we will actually be on on Wednesday at uh, 1800 British time, which I think is about 10 o'clock uh, Pacific. And you'll be able to watch Drew and Ethan and myself promoting, um, talking about not not Palo, but specifically how SASE works in that modern environment. So if you go over to sassyconverge.paloaltonetworks.com, you'll be able to register for the event. It's free and it's virtual. Yes, taking place uh, September 13th and 14th in North America and the 14th and 15th of September in Europe and Asia. Yeah, it's, so, yeah, it's across a, all the time zones. It's one of those things where it's all pre-recorded and you can watch it at your convention. You know, yeah, it's a virtual Virtually, event. but we actually did a session for it, which I think came out very podcasty style. So, uh, you know, please do go along and watch that uh, and, and register for it. All right, moving on. Uh, the insurance giant Lloyd's is recommending that insurance companies exclude state-sponsored cyber attacks from their cyber insurance policies to limit their liability exposure. We've uh, got links to a market bulletin from Lloyd's that's recommending insurance companies use, quote, robust language to make these exclusions clear. So who is Lloyd's Insurance? They're the insurer for the insurance companies. So the right way to think about the insurance industry is that the insurance companies that you buy your policy from is a middleman or a warehouse of insurance. And they build up a portfolio and they say, well, you know, now we've got $500 million worth of insurance policies. What happens if something happens that we actually get a substantial call on those policies and we have to pay out more? Well, then they go to Lloyd's and sell back off some or all of that risk to the reinsurance industry. 
And Lloyd's right. is one of the biggest reinsurers, uh, pretty much working with high net wealth individuals. Um, do you want to know? Do you want to hear some funny story, like some history about that, or, is, or would that be a bit of a divergence? No, go right ahead. Yeah. So Lloyd's Insurance started back in the days of the British pirates and and British shipping. And what would happen is a ship would go out to sea and they would form a consortium. And all the rich men, after you've made your money being a pirate or being a merchant, would then stay on shore and they'd all get together and say, well, we look at this boat, we see the captain, we'll club together and we'll we'll all put in the money to, to let them go so that nobody loses all their money if one ship goes down. Mm-hmm. And that later yep. moved off to we'll insure it. So if the ship gets lost, we'll pay you back. And that's how the insurance industry uh-huh. developed. And Lloyd's of London was the first uh, collective uh, operation. And then basically rich people just gave them a bunch of money and they just said, well, we'll put some in this fund and we want to fund spice trade and the gold trade or whatever. And they would insure the shipping. And that has evolved into what is now the worldwide reinsurance market. And Lloyd's actually dictates the terms because the people who put the money into Lloyd's are saying, we'll only invest in this insurance pot and they have hundreds of them, and it's and they their insurance pots are measured in tens of billions of dollars, uh, and you know often with named individuals like the super rich, uh, and so they're now saying the risk of cyber war is so high that we need to write it out of the policy, which as I've said before, you know, my belief is that cyber insurance is what's currently driving the cybersecurity market and also driving executive awareness of cybersecurity, and as those policies increase in price. It puts a dollar tag on cybersecurity activities, and it also puts conditions on because they come along and say, <laughs> "Your if you want us to write a cyber insurance policy, we have to come in and do an inspection." And they yes. look at your inspection and go, "Like no zero trust. Your firewalls are ten years old. Time to we're not going to give you an insurance policy, or if we do, we're going to you know rate it at this price. It's going to cost you an arm and a leg, and, yeah." And all of a sudden, and we're hearing stories from people saying our cybersecurity is being dramatically overhauled. Because the cyber insurance was so high, we have to reduce it by doing these things. Yeah, I think uh, you know a lot of insurance companies got into the cyber insurance space. They saw a hot market and sort of gleefully signing up customers, and then realized what a horrible mistake they'd made when suddenly they had to pay out all these claims. Uh, now Lloyd's is saying essentially it doesn't even have to be a war; any state-sponsored attack. Uh, they're just not going to cover, uh, mm. <laughs> which is a signal to me that the insurance industry realizes, one, just how deadly these state-sponsored actors are, too, and how bad their customers are at managing risk and perhaps how poorly the security industry is doing protecting their customers. Yeah, I think so. So it's going to be interesting if these sorts of things go away. If you're in a company which is uh, a target of state-sponsored attackers, you'll need to reevaluate your cyber insurance policy in the years to come. And I think this will have more impact than we can really understand. You don't hear these things talked about in public. But I think that's one of the things that happens. Yeah. uh, One last note from the market bulletin. It it says that when it comes to cyber insurance, quote, losses have the potential to greatly exceed what the insurance market is able to absorb. (laughs) So that's Lloyd's is like, yeah, this is too risky. We're not going to do it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Moving on, Cisco Systems, they reported their Q4 and fiscal 2022 financial results for the quarter. The company had revenues of $13.1 billion flat year over year and net income of $2.8 billion, down 6% year over year. But for the full year, they did better. They had revenues of $51.6 billion, up 3% year over year, and net income of $11.8 billion, up 12% year over year. Yeah, so we always focus on Cisco because they're a very high profile company in the share markets and they're often seen as a signal for the state of the IT market. So it's always worth talking about it. Now, going into the announcement, Cisco was predicted to shrink substantially, like to have uh, product sales would be down 0.6% and a number of other, you know, profit would be down by 20%. And they've actually come in 
above that. And of course, the market has rallied and said, well, that's excellent and it's done whatever. Chuck Robbins said, we've had record product orders, which fueled our backlog to the highest level ever recorded, as well as our second strongest year of revenue in the history of the company at $51.6 billion. So they were expected to shrink. And in fact, they managed to grow a fraction, which makes you wonder how much they're sandbagging. <laughs> like Cisco has a history of always managing to just do more than the market expects. So I don't ever know why they think it's going to be the opposite. <laughs> Um, Chuck Robbins went on to say, uh, from an annual growth rate perspective, we clearly put, face some very tough comparisons with the record orders we saw in Q4 last year where we had over 30% growth. And based on that, the year-over-year -year decline is not a surprise, nor is it concerning. It's important to keep in mind that in the near, near term, our rate and pace of revenue growth is more a function of component availability than on our quarterly product order growth. So basically, Q4 last year, as we went into Christmas, uh, people were placing orders for kit and expecting it to be a year or two out. So a lot of orders were brought forward and he's reminding mm -hmm. investors. However, I would point out that Cisco's market capitalization is now around, is now a touch under 200 billion. It's somewhere around 195 billion, moves around a bit, uh, but it was $250 billion at the beginning of the year. So Cisco's share price is tracking the technology market down broadly. So they're down $50 billion in valuation. So um, not a surprise that Cisco would be, you know, trying to, have a pitch and uh, one of the analyst notes that I read noted that Cisco regularly ha predicts a bad quarter which it did last quarter and then every time after that for the next year they have a great they always beat the result which I, uh -huh. <laughs> it's, I'd call it sandbagging but you know maybe uh -huh. maybe I'm not as smart as uh, investors and analysts <laughs> <laughs> never know <laughs> Uh, breaking down the results by business unit for the full year, the networking business had revenues of $23.8 billion, up 5% year-over-year. The security business was up 9% for the year with a total revenues of $3.7 billion. Uh, Internet of the Future, that's their optical networking, public 5G, and, and silicon and optics was up 17% at $5.3 billion in revenue. Uh, the one downside was the collaboration BU, which saw revenues dip for 5% over the year. Yep. WebEx and telephony, not a big deal. Cisco is really not yeah. doing well there. What's notable here is no mention of cloud companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No cloud giants in there. No cloud uh, giants. Yep. So yeah. as always, Cisco, there's no reason to believe that Cisco's having major wins in that space at the moment. Yeah. All right. Our last story for the day. Uh, it's our surfing dog story. There's articles going around about how the Janet Jackson song Rhythm Nation can cause older laptop models to crash. It turns out the song contains natural resonant frequencies that match some models of the 5400 RPM hard drives in old laptops. And these resonant frequencies create vibrations in the drives that just cause them to fail. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it's an urban legend. But when you actually right. go and dig into it, there's actually an official Microsoft blog confirming exactly this. And it has actually led to an official CVE being published in 2022, by the way. Uh, That's hilarious. Uh, where you can actually look it up. And it's actually, been, I think the CVE might be as much of a joke as a, but it's real enough, uh, apparently, if you play it. Now, not only will it break the uh, 5400 RPM drive in your laptop, Apparently, if it's loud enough, it can actually take down laptops around it that can hear this audio. Right. <laughs> which, is, which is awesome. I love that. I love that. I do love that. Oh, yeah. Yes. So it's pretty hysterical. Just a reminder that in the early days of computing, so much of what we did was actually mechanical. Duh. Like, uh -huh. we, uh -huh. I was, was not unusual for me to take my laptop or my desktop and strip it down and give everything a clean and put it back together. And a lot of the reboots and, re you know, spontaneous restarts would stop. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, and I guess they actually did come up with a fix for it too. It was a custom filter in the audio pipeline to remove the frequencies during playback. <laughs> I wonder if it's still around uh, in in today's operating systems. I would be curious. A little piece of uh, interesting code still there. I bet the audio files for a peculiar would know. reason. I bet they detected that missing frequencies Maybe. in their playback. Yes. <laughs> a, a couple of points for me. One, congratulations to Miss Jackson for being so badass that she could take out laptops. That's pretty cool. Uh, the other thing is, I, this this absolutely needs to somehow find its way into a movie script about hacking. That's it's just too good to, to leave. <laughs> It'll be in a Hollywood movie, I'm sure, at some point. No doubt at all. <laughs> Let's see. Let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> all right, that wraps up uh, our news. Greg, where can folk get more from you online if they are interested? I've been big on Twitter this week. Uh, <laughs> I stumbled across a folder in my uh, history of customer stuff where uh, I actually found a bunch of cursed, what I call cursed iOS configs from the late 90s with things like <laughs> DNA, D- DLSW, SNA, Token Ring, and, uh, and all sorts of weird and unusual things. And I posted them on Twitter, which uh, people have been having a lot of fun taunting me that obviously I'm working on. Is that the technology I'm working on? Well, thanks for that. I really appreciated that, uh, that valuable feedback. <laughs> no, they just happened yeah. to be sitting in my folder. So, yeah. That's right. I just yeah, you can find Greg on Twitter at Ethereal Mind. Uh, I'm Drew Connery Murray. I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore CM and blogging at packetpushers.net. Thanks for listening. Uh, We always, uh, and if you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. The FU is for follow-up and we'll see you next week.